Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. All Ontario long-term care homes still don't have air conditioning. A Hamilton delegation is checking out the Commonwealth Games in England. We'll tell you about two major issues hampering city housing Hamilton. COVID has cancer patients and caregivers stressed out. Are automakers going to start nickel and diming us on subscriptions? And Canadian sport officials are tackling competition manipulation. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. No longer will the seniors and the staff in our long-term care homes have to suffer through the summer heat. And this important work will take place in every corner of the province, from Windsor to Ottawa, from Kenora to Niagara, and everywhere in between. No matter where you live, you and your loved ones should have access to top-notch long-term care. My friends, together we will build a better system. My friends, you remember that. July 15th, 2020, more than two years ago. And last year, legislation was passed requiring air conditioning to be installed in all long-term care homes in this province. Yet, two years after the promise... And many months after the legislation, dozens of long-term care facilities and the residents who live in them and the staff that work in them remain without AC. What gives? This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Let's bring in our next guest. Uh, Christine Souk is the daughter of a resident at a well-in-long-term care home and joins us now. Christine, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. You have obviously a very personal story to tell. Your mom is in a long-term care facility. What have you seen at this uh, facility? Well, last summer was our first summer with her in long-term care, and we were astonished to find out the rooms weren't air-conditioned. There was a cooling area, but the home met all of the requirements. So this year, when the warm weather rolled around, I asked a question in a town hall meeting for families. When are we going to get this home up to spec and meet the requirement for in-room air conditioning? And I was told to, much to my surprise, that they were in compliance. And I can tell you there is no air conditioning in each of those rooms in that home. Um, The temperatures range anywhere from 80 degrees in the morning on a hot day and upwards, the last time I checked, um, 83 or over 28 degrees in her room at 1.30 in the afternoon last Friday. Um, But yet they claim to be in compliance. How, how did you guys, how did your mom get through that? I mean, we just had a stifling heat wave. Well, she, she, and it wasn't very pleasant. She is bed bound. She uh, requires assistance to get in and out of her wheelchair. So once she's in her room, she's stuck there until some of the overworked staff have time to come and transfer her and move her to the cooling area. Uh, she's fortunate in that she has my dad visiting every day and my sister and I advocating for her. So she now has uh, a portable in-room air conditioner in there as a temporary measure, which brought the, the level down to about um, 25 degrees, which was which was more tolerable. But what about all of the other residents in that home and in others who have nobody to advocate for them? And what about the staff that have to put on PPE to go in and out of that room not to mention that two of the units in that in that home are currently in COVID lockdown, which means the residents can't leave their room and the staff have to put on plastic gowns and full PPE every time they enter the room. It's, it's awful. So is there an action plan from the home to install AC units in, in all the rooms? What's the response been like? The response was that they are in compliance with the requirement. And when I did some research and read the Fixing Long-Term Care Act, as it is, 
Um, the requirement says all resident bedrooms are served by air conditioning. So it doesn't seem that there's a requirement to actually install um, an actual source of air conditioning within each room. So they are doing all of the required uh, temperature checks. They're required to check two bedrooms each time they do a check morning, uh, afternoon and evening, but those can be anywhere. So you're going to choose the ones. It's like a home. Some of the uh, bedrooms that are closer to the uh, common areas that are well air conditioned are a little bit cooler than ones than the ones you know in the far corner like my mother. So I'm pretty sure they're not checking her room at three o'clock in the afternoon on a hot day. They're choosing something closer to the common areas. Um, there doesn't seem to be a plan. Now, I will say that they recognized they had a problem, and last Friday they were running around installing these portable air conditioners in hallways and in residence rooms where somebody advocated for one. So now we've got windows taped over with plastic, an air conditioning unit from, from Canadian Tire or something pulled up to it, a hole in the plastic to, to vent to the outside, and a pail next to it to collect the uh, the water from the air conditioning unit. So that particular home has attempted to do something on a temporary basis, but that is not the long-term fix that we were promised. Christine Zuka is the daughter of a resident at a well and long-term care home and is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. How does this make you all feel? Because this is this is one home. Uh, you have your mom in this home. There are dozens of others in the, a very similar situation. Well, and, and this is a relatively new home. So when I think province-wide, there must be people in a whole lot worse condition even than this home. This home was built, I think, five or six years ago. So it's relatively modern and it does have good air conditioning in the in the common area, which was previously last year referred to as the cooling area. Um, but, you know, it's not a good situation. And I see she's in a lockdown unit and the, most of those people cannot fend for themselves, can't advocate for themselves. And in a lot of cases don't have family coming by regularly. So if I called the home and they told me, you know, yes, we're in compliance and we have uh, air conditioning for the resident rooms and I never was able to go and have a look. And I mean, we brought a thermometer in to monitor the temperature in her room. You know, most of these people don't have that. And the staff certainly don't have a choice. Their choice is uh, with their feet, go find another job somewhere where there's air conditioning. Um, And I imagine some of them are doing that. and, And that leaves this this and other homes like it uh, in even worse shape because staffing is is an issue in long-term care. It's a difficult job and it's a hot uh, physical job, particularly in the summer. What's your message to the provincial government? My message to the provincial government is that they need to go back and rewrite these regulations and, and inspect these homes with a view to how comfortable are the residents really. I feel like the regulations were written in such a way that there are loopholes for homes like this to to get through or to sort of claim to meet the requirements so that the government could make a statement that, you know, X number of, of homes are in compliance and isn't this wonderful, we've fixed long-term care. And they have not. Clearly have not. Christine, really appreciate your time today. Best of luck to you, your mom, and your entire family. Thank you very much. That's Christine Zook, daughter of a resident at a, uh, her mom at a Welland long-term care facility. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have some news from Commonwealth Sport Canada. It's announced the withdrawals of uh, Canadian sprinters Andre de Grasse, Aaron Brown, and Jerome Blake, as well as decathlete Pierce LePage from Canada's team for the 2022 Commonwealth Games, which kicks off later on this week in Birmingham, England. Now, if you were following the World Championships in Eugene, Oregon, which just wrapped up, uh, DeGrasse, Brown, and Blake 
teamed up to win the men's 4x100-meter relay at the Worlds, and uh, LePage won a silver medal. So we have four medalists who were superstars at the Worlds that are not going to be as uh, part of Team Canada at the Commonwealth Games in 2022. So that's quite upsetting, I'm sure, for many Canadian uh, fans and for Commonwealth Sport Canada. Let's hope that they're uh, at the next uh, big event, which I guess would be the Olympics in this case. Or really, I guess it would be the Worlds and then the Olympics. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully, in four years' time, they are competing in the Commonwealth Games. And my guess is most of them probably won't be around from an athletic competition standpoint uh, in 2030 when we think, we hope, I think many people do, that Hamilton will be hosting the 2030 Commonwealth Games. And I know there's some people who are on the fence thinking, nah, yeah, it'd be nice to get them, but... Now we got to think about all these other things. There are others in the community who are dead set against it. Like, no, don't bring a major sporting event to a community in which we have so many other issues we got to tackle. And there's the other side of the equation. You're like, yeah, I mean, this is great for community spirit. This is, uh, it'll leave a nice legacy project in terms of some of the facilities that will be constructed here. Uh, bring the games to Hamilton and, and the area. It's not just going to be the city of Hamilton, but most uh, communities, surrounding communities, will be participating in certain events. Uh, it also, and we're hoping to get uh, a hold of Mayor Fred Eisenberger, who is in Birmingham, England, or at least on the way, we are told, to check out what is going on in that community as they get set to host the 2022 Commonwealth Games. Part of this delegation as well, and this I think is even more interesting than visiting Birmingham, is visiting Manchester. Because you may have remembered that Manchester, England hosted the 2002 Commonwealth Games. And why is that more interesting to me? Well, this is all about the legacy. It's great to have the sporting event here, right? We want to cheer on our Canadian athletes. We want to win the most medals. We want Hamilton to be um, you know, broadcast to the world and, and all the great things that we have. But at the end of the day, it's the legacy of the games that is with us forever and ever. And so when this delegation visits Manchester to see the economic, the social, the community legacy of that event, that to me is going to be the big eye opener and the big knowledge contributor to this delegation. What did Manchester do to carve out that um, that legacy? What do they have left after the games? The sporting event is long gone. I, you know, you can you can ask uh, the common person in Manchester, England, who won the gold at the 100 meter men's and women's final at the 2002 Commonwealth Games nearly 20 years ago. Most people aren't going to remember that, but they probably will remember a housing project, some kind of swimming pool, whatever the case is. I understand that Mayor Fred Eisenberger has now joined us from Birmingham, England. Mr. Mayor, how are you? I am well, thank you. Uh, we're pressed for time, only got a couple of minutes, but uh, you're out in, in uh, Birmingham, England to check out what's going on with the Commonwealth Games. I want to ask you about the visit to Manchester, because I'm more intrigued about you know the, the legacy of that project. What do you hope to find and bring back to Hamilton? Well, good to be here for the uh, Birmingham Games, and uh, you know there's evidence of, uh, of what they've been able to achieve here as well in terms of legacy projects, including uh, you know an improved transit system. But Manchester... Uh, was a bidder uh, for the 2002 games when uh, when the city of Hamilton actually bid on it, and uh, I was quite 
intrigued by what they were able to redevelop through their industrial area to turn it into a residential commercial with public transportation. And uh, I've talked about it often, and I thought it was a great opportunity to go see what's happened in the ensuing 20 years that uh, after they've uh, used that games for city building purposes. So I'm uh, quite intrigued by that. I look forward to seeing that tomorrow. And uh, whatever knowledge I uh, gain from that, ha- hope to bring that back to inform the bid that we're working on for the 2030 games. Speaking of which, are the stars aligned for Hamilton to host that games? And is there any other competition that's come forward? Um, there, there's rumors of. I, I don't think the you know the final bid time is is uh, you know upon us just yet. So that that happens next year. So it's hard to know. Uh, who, if anyone else, uh, is aligned for that? But certainly, we're making our pitch here to uh, to the International Commonwealth Committee to let them know that we're working hard on a, a, a bid proposal, that we're uh, enthusiastic about the uh, the opportunity, and uh, we encourage them to consider Hamilton as their choice for the 2030 Games for both uh, practical reasons, city building reasons, but also sentimental ones relative to the uh, 100th anniversary uh, where the games actually started in Hamilton back in 1930. Just wanted to switch gears. Uh, Andrea Horvath has entered the race to become, or at least will officially in, in uh, 33 minutes' time, enter the race to become mm-hmm. Hamilton's next mayor. Your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I, as well as many others, have encouraged Andrea to run. Uh, I'm very supportive. Uh, I think her uh, her her level of uh, knowledge and experience is uh, necessary to to do the job uh, of mayor properly, and uh, I look forward to her announcement. And uh, I will uh, will uh, let her know that uh, whatever I can do to help her uh, move her campaign along, and and you know once once successful uh, help with the uh, with the mayor's work, uh, I'm happy to do that. So very encouraged by her uh, stepping up to uh, to be a candidate, and uh, I look forward to giving her support. So you're officially supporting her campaign? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm supportive of her campaign. Now, she hasn't asked me to, uh, to make an endorsement, but uh, if she does, I will uh, certainly consider that. I, uh, I certainly intend to, uh, at some point, endorse a candidate, and uh, certainly it's high time we had a female uh, mayor, and, uh, and certainly have one, have one that has the depth and, and wealth of experience that Henry has uh, certainly bodes well. Mr. Mayor, we got to run. Thank you for your time today. Enjoy the trip. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What has been happening at City Housing Hamilton? Well, that's a question some people are asking uh, because there's a couple of issues that we need to discuss. Number one, a projected funding gap and some safety concerns. Here to talk about it is Sean Botham, Manager of Developments at City Housing Hamilton, and his colleague at City Ham- Housing Hamilton, Amanda Warren-Ritchie. Sean, Amanda, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, morning. Very well. Uh, Sean, we'll start with you. Let's tackle the, the funding gap issue for a couple of City Housing Hamilton projects. What's happening on this front? Yeah, at a high level, uh, there's two factors at play. There's construction construction cost escalations, as well as a decrease in funding commitment from our main funder, CMHC. And this is on the eve of uh, the start of two construction projects this summer. So I understand that this uh, funding gap is north of $5 million, which is uh, a big chunk of change. How, how and can we close this gap? 
Yeah, I mean, it is massive. It's 5.4 million. And this is despite our best efforts at narrowing project gaps, including repositioning funding, um, looking at what debt we can um, add in um, and service. So those have already been considered and, and brought into this. So um, really, really, we need our, our funder to return with a commitment that uh, matches what they had indicated at the start of our application process. Um, or we need another funder to come to the table. So just on Friday, we had a special meeting of the city housing board and uh, essentially brought forward a recommendation for the city to consider funding this gap as to backstop it in, in absence of um, this federal commitment. And from what I understand, Sean, there are two projects that are really being now held up because of this funding shortfall. Yeah, absolutely. This is, it pertains to two important uh, or, or really critical rebuilds of uh, sold units that were part of um, the renewal of our portfolio. And so they're at Bay and Cannon and at the former City Motor Hotel site at the Queenston Traffic Circle. And they include 95 units in, in combined in total, most of them being rebuilt, some of them net new. Uh, and these are, as you know, incredibly important for our uh, affordability crisis. Uh, Sean Botham is with us, Manager of Development, City Housing Hamilton, as is Amanda Warren Ritchie, the Manager of Strategy and Quality Improvement with City Housing Hamilton. Amanda, from a safety perspective, City Housing Hamilton spends more than a million dollars a year on private security. That seems like a an exorbitant amount of money. Hi, good morning. Yeah, so actually it's $1.7 million that we're spending per year on third-party security guards as well as video surveillance. And also over um, the last two years, we've had to increase some security as a result of COVID. Um, so that kind of is a combination of why we've been spending so much money. And it's been a piece of work that we've been working on for the last 15 years. So this isn't new. This is work that we've been continuing to build. And this year we're working on our strategic plan. And part of our strategic plan is we reached out to our tenants to do some tenant engagement. And part of the tenant engagement, we heard from our tenants that um, they were saying that they're not feeling safe at some of our properties and that it was affecting their well-being. Um, and as I also said, COVID has also been a huge, um, disrupted their social habits, as well as we've noticed an increase mental health issues within our buildings and social issues that are happening. And so that combination is kind of a reason of why we're moving forward with um, this position. How much lower would you like to see that safety expenditure be trimmed down to? <laughs> I wish I could give you a number right <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, we obviously can't be spending $1.7 million. We don't have those operational funds to be able to do that. So we really need to look at more of a holistic approach in regards to how we deal with our safety. A lot of it right now has been on those physical aspects. So video cameras, um, security guards in our buildings. And we really want to step back and look at more of a community-based approach in regards to how we manage our safety. So and is this will be the thrust and the specialization, I guess, of this safety individual who's going to be brought on board? Correct. And so what's that person's role? Just to formulate a plan or to formulate, execute, oversee? All of those things you just said, right? So it's to kind of step back and look at what we've done so far, do those in needs analysis again, you know, create a safety and wellness approach that really is focusing on social development, looking at prevention, risk mitigation, and those emergency responses. So kind of a whole package and also make it very community-based. You know, um, when we're looking at safety, it depends on where you are within the community. So we really want to make sure that our tenants are engaged in that piece. Amanda, how serious are these safety issues? 
they're very serious, obviously, and each property, there's different situations that are happening on a daily basis. Going forward, what's the biggest challenge once you have the plan in place? Is it just uh, ensuring that residents are safe or is it more than that? I think it's a combination of our tenants making sure that they feel engaged in that piece and that, you know, that they, everyone deserves a home that, that's safe place to call home. And that's kind of, that is our focus there on that. Our two guests here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Amanda Warren-Ritchie, Manager of Strategy and uh, Quality Improvement at City Housing Hamilton, and uh, Sean Botham is the Manager of Development at City Housing Hamilton. Sean, back to you just on the, the funding part in these two projects. Is there a timeline or a deadline that you have in place to, to, to get some kind of answer? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we really are, uh, we, we, we think of it on the eve of construction with um, uh, both projects to kick off before September. So for us to do that confidently, we we do need um, this funding, the majority of it secured. So we're, we're looking for this in the, in the next two to three weeks. Well, it's two major issues. Uh, I wish you nothing but the best and good luck in solving these problems. And uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Sean Botham, Manager of Development at City Housing Hamilton, and Amanda Warren-Ritchie, the Manager of Strategy and Quality Improvement at City Housing. Two huge issues. I mean, security, yeah, number one, you want to be safe and healthy where you live, and that includes your mental health. And so when things go bump in the night or awry or, you know, an issue or some violence happens, that is going to put a strain on you, your mental health, your family, your, your children, if you're in that scenario as well. And from the funding perspective, I mean, these are new units that should be coming on board or very much needed, especially with the affordable housing crunch in our community, in our country. So let's hope that um, things go smoothly or a little more smoothly for City Housing Hamilton from here on in on those two issues. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New survey out from the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network and it has some interesting findings in terms of what cancer patients in this country, what caregivers in this country are feeling uh, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, which newsflash, is still going on. Jackie Manthorne is the president and CEO of the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jackie, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Let's talk about your survey. What did you find? Well, uh, can I, I'll just back it up a bit because we did pre- three previous surveys with Leger where we looked at uh, disruption of cancer care, if you will, all the way from screening to, to treatment. Uh, that resulted in postponed appointments, uh, canceled surgeries. We think when we think of cancer surgeries, we think that that'll happen right away no matter what. But most cancer surgery, unless it's urgent, is actually considered elective. So there are many, many uh, cancer patients who were not getting uh, treated or tested the way they should. We did those uh, surveys uh, starting in spring 2020. Uh, right up until last fall. The thing is that we weren't planning to do another one. And then a patient said to us, I'm going to be a prisoner in my own home when society opens up again. And we thought, whoa, we need to look at what that means. And so we went back to Leger and said, we want to do a survey, but we want to know how cancer patients and caregivers are feeling when Masking is not obligatory in most places. Distancing has gone by the wayside. Everyone uh, is out walking around without a mask. 
So we said, how, when will you feel comfortable? What do you feel now? And, and how are you going to feel comfortable? And it's very clear from the responses that uh, 50% of the respondents said, uh, we're going to have to be very cautious. We're very concerned that, we, that, that public health measures uh, to protect everyone uh, are being lifted so quickly. Um, one person said, and I'll read her comment here, the provincial opening was too fast and did not look at actual case numbers. And I think that that's, that's very true because we know right now uh, COVID is, is rampant in our communities. So patients and caregivers are looking at ways to protect themselves. They're not going out as much. They, they're not uh, doing grocery shopping as much. And heaven forbid that they would attend a concert or, or a festival uh, because they're not. Uh, they feel too much at risk. Um, and a large percentage of cancer patients, once they've gone through treatment, are immunocompromised. That means their immune system is not going to really protect them uh, very much. Uh, I think one of the things that's been missing in our COVID uh, world is a way of finding out just how much protection you have uh, once you've been vaccinated. We found in other surveys that cancer patients and caregivers were more likely to be vaccinated than members of the general public. And I think that this is an important uh, point to make. Cancer patients want to be part of an opening up of society. Some of them are very excited about it, but others who know that they're immunocompromised don't want to be near people who don't have a mask on and that may be crowding them in the grocery line or in the line in the pharmacy. Um, so they don't go. Uh, and of course, we know COVID is, we know we're being told that COVID is here to stay and that we're going to have to adapt to it. And this is true right across the country. So I, I think that this is something that, that we've said over and over again, please think about cancer patients and others who are immunocompromised. For example, uh, people who've uh, had an organ transplant, uh, they are immunocompromised for the rest of their lives so that their body doesn't reject uh, the new organ. Yeah, Jackie, uh, let me jump in because we only got uh, a couple minutes here. I, I want to ask you about uh, the mental health aspect because getting a cancer diagnosis will bring anyone to their knees and they need a support group to, you know, prop them up in, in many cases. With public health restrictions going by the wayside, with impacts on surgery delays and cancellations being a stark reality, how are they doing mentally? Not well. Uh, there's a lot of stress. In fact, caregivers who often are the navigators between the patient and, and the healthcare system uh, are more stressed out. Um, it, many, many support groups went virtual when COVID started. They had to completely uh, turn around on a dime and say, we can't stop supporting patients. So we will go virtually. We will have Zoom calls. We will uh, do FaceTime. Um, and, and a lot of that continued, but it is still, it, COVID has added an extra layer of stress on all of us, but for cancer patients who really do not want to get it, who really feel their, their life would be in danger or that they, even if they're vaccinated, that they would become sicker uh, and maybe need hospital care than members of the general public. Uh, we, so support is really important. We're, we're finding, it was interesting on the first three surveys, we found that uh, stress 
sort of went in this wave uh, with the, the top of the wave being uh, when we were in the middle of, a, of, of another uh, rush of COVID and in the trial of, of the wave when things were a bit quieter. Um, and I, I think right now that probably the stress is in a constant line because we're just having a wave after wave of, of COVID uh, and keeping our fingers crossed that we don't get one that's more virulent. Added to the uh, to the issue too, and, and we got to run here, is that there is a burnout factor at hospitals, at uh, you know cancer screening facilities, because they've been working, um, you know, uh, these crazy hours for so many days, and that is also compounding the problem. Jackie, if there is one message in thirty seconds that you have for the government, the healthcare system, cancer survivors, what's your message to them? When the next COVID nineteen variant emerges, or the next wave, or the next pandemic or natural disaster, we believe that at all levels of society, cancer patients need to be protected. Well said, Jackie. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. That's Jackie Manthorn, President and CEO of the Canadian Cancer Survivor Network. Their recent survey with Leger found that half of their respondents said they were uncomfortable with the lifting of public health restrictions where they live, and you can imagine why. One in five said these changes would have a negative impact on their lives. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As if your car or truck or SUV weren't already expensive enough, some automakers are hoping you dig a little bit deeper into your pocket to pay for some of the most trendy or comforting add-ons. To that end, some vehicle makers are charging subscription fees for certain services. The question is, is it worth the money? Lorraine Sommerfeld is an award-winning automotive columnist at Post Media and the Motherload column in the Hamilton Spectator. Lorraine, good morning. How are you? How are you doing, Rick? I'm good. Before we answer the is it worth it question, what are automakers up to? Well, they've flown this flag a couple times previously, and it's landed with a dull thud over here. Uh, BMW in South Korea and a couple other countries, if you want your heated seats to work, you have to pay, I think, the equivalent of 18 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month. And increasingly, as cars become con- their computers on wheels, we're going to see them trying to do this. They're trying to find ways to make money and make regular money, which will be subscription services. And they figure we're used to Netflix, we're used to all this other stuff, serious radio. So they're going to try and look for ways to do that. And frankly, right now, it's not going to work. But Tesla is the one who's really pushed ahead into this, making people comfortable getting updates over the air and things like that. So we'll be frog in the pot. It'll get there. It's not here right now. (laughs) I love the analogy. Is it not here right now because not all the automakers are buying into this? Um, They're nervous about the public because consumers, BMW tried it here a couple of years ago and the pushback was massive and there's more talk about it. And when there's chirping, you know, there's something behind it and we're hearing it from lots of different sectors and everyone remembers OnStar and Sirius Radio, stuff like that. And as soon as your OnStar subscription stopped, you stopped getting it. Most of us did because you had a phone in your car. So they're facing the same things that we do. Stuff's updated so frequently that they want to be able to stay on top of it. But a GPS is far different than heated seats. They're even talking about your key fobs working, things (laughs) like that. It's ludicrous, and North American consumers have a lot of power. What if you're leasing a vehicle and you have a subscription or two or even more of that, and and you trade in your vehicle? Are those subscriptions passed on to the next person? The only thing I've heard of where that's happening is VinFast, which is a new EV company, um, 
out of Vietnam, they're, they have a battery subscription where you buy the car or lease the car and subscribe for the battery, which means if it loses a certain degree of power, you get another one. And they're doing it so they can keep tabs on the, on the battery components and make sure that everyone's happy with this new company. Um, they pass it on to the next one. Like you can do that. I haven't heard anything about used cars and everything else. It's going to be a bit of a cluster, and I'm not sure how they're going to figure it out. But I, when I buy a car, I want to buy the whole car. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to, you know. And my biggest problem: Are they going to make this retroactive? Is the car I have sitting in my driveway going to fall under this? It's one thing to knowingly go into it. It's something totally different to have it tossed at you. Ooh, that would be sneaky. Lorraine Sommerfeld is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Lorraine is an award-winning automotive columnist at Post Media and the Motherload column in the Hamilton Spectator. We're talking about vehicle subscriptions or little services, little tweaks and, and, and perks like heated seats or a heated steering, uh, remote starting. All these things could be on a subscription basis for some automakers going forward. We know that self-driving vehicles are slowly entering the market and may one day be the thing. Um, which brings to mind subscriptions like Netflix. I guess they would be included in these self-driving vehicles. You're going way ahead. <laughs> Self-driving is not here. It's still being tested. We, there's five levels of automation. We're at two. Yeah. Tesla pretends they're at three. They're not. That's why you keep reading about them. But no, we're not there yet. You still need a driver. Still has to be able to take control every single second, and they're developing it. And a lot of the things on your car, like lane departure and front collision warning, those are all autonomous features, which will all be you know, in a fully autonomous car. So we're already getting used to those features and having them, and the tech is that. It's autonomous. But as for cars, there's the, in- the infrastructure is not there. The cars will have to talk to each other. They'll have to talk to the road and everything else. We're not there yet. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people that are going to keep their cold hands on the steering wheel <laughs> of the car they have. <laughs> So. You're exactly right. I would I would assume, though, that younger drivers, because they are more apt to subscribe to, I don't know, things like Apple Music, they're ordering on mm-hmm. Skip almost daily, they're going to be mm-hmm. more inclined to maybe uh, add a subscription or two to their vehicle. Do you see that? Yeah, well, new cars now, you, you, you get Android or Apple with almost all of them. Um, those subscriptions I think people are cool with, like I said, OnStar and Sirius, like that we understand, but a lot of them, you run your phone through the car, so you're already paying, so you're not going to double pay, which is why they just give it to you, because they know you've already got it. Um, I think some things are more tolerable than others, but if it's a feature of your car that will not work unless you pull out your Visa card, I think that's <laughs> it's wrong-headed, and the industry already has a bit of a reputation for um, doing some scuzzy things, and I don't think that's going to benefit them that said like i said they're going to get us used to this idea and it'll start in the the expensive brands first where people don't really care and then filter down but it's it's a while i don't see that my little hyundai is going to come under attack in the next 18 months (laughs) now now for the uh, nearly million dollar question i think i know the answer to this is paying for these subscriptions worth it Uh it's going to depend on how much you want them it's going to depend on which ones they are it's going to depend on how squirrely they went about getting you to do it. And there's already a lack of transparency in too many parts of this industry. And so if you walk in and you make the deal and that's all good, and they go, oh, by the way, <laughs> you know, if you want half those features to work, you have to pay another sixty-two fifty a month. I think there's going to be a bad taste for a lot of people. So they're going to have to learn to be more transparent and upfront about this stuff because there are consumers that care. Like 50 bucks a month is a big difference for people on a car payment. And sure, they got 
client. A lot of us it is. So they're going to have to get a lot clearer and bulletproof as well. And when you see failures on computer systems, you know <laughs> that stuff's going to go sideways. Amen. Well said. Lorraine, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Rick. Columnist with Driving.ca and the Hamilton Spectator. And she got a great point. You know, we, we just want the whole car. Never mind these little nickel and dime payments here for subscriptions on things like heated seats or, I don't know, one day watching Netflix in your vehicle. Just just give me the car. The, the one payment. We don't need all these uh, price escalators here, there, and everywhere. Just give me the vehicle. You, we, you and I both know, though, the price is going to go higher and higher and higher and make it more unaffordable. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport is teaming up with the Canadian Olympic Committee to launch a new pilot project that is going to analyze the threat of competition manipulation. So what exactly is going on here? Paul Milia is the president and CEO of the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning, Rick. Uh, we'll start with the simplest of questions. What is competition manipulation? Well, uh, I think most people, when they think about that, might think about uh, a term like max uh, match fixing, right? So trying to uh, affect the outcome of a competition fix it so that the people that are setting up the betting on it know who's going to win, who's going to lose, and they can manipulate that to create more profit for them. And this is something that organized crime is is very involved in. Um, but competition manipulation is more than that. It's become much more sophisticated with the ability online to do real-time betting. So now things that are manipulated within competitions are, take soccer, for example, they might throw up a bet that who's going to get the first corner kick in the match, that team A or team B. In tennis, it might be who's going to who's going to have the first double fault. In 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 hockey, it could be who, which team's going to take the first penalty. These things are easily manipulated by organized crime. They can approach the players. They can recruit them to, uh, you know, work with them to ensure that the outcome they want in that little manipulation takes place and they can set the betting up so that they can make more money. Uh, so competition manipulation is a term meant to embrace things that happen within matches, but also the outcome of matches that are manipulated in a way that uh, organized crime typically uh, uses to create more profit for themselves. In this day and age of multi-gazillion dollar contracts, is this more of a concern in the amateur sports scene or is there still a spotlight on pro sports and pro athletes? Well, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think that uh, obviously for the reason you mentioned, the, the multi-million dollar athlete um, is not going to be as you know vulnerable to approaches from organized crime. Uh, but in, in sports like tennis and golf, a lot of that money is concentrated on a very few players at the very top of those sports. So you don't have to go very far down in those sports to find athletes who are trying to get to that next level who would become very vulnerable to, you know, an offer by organized crime to, you know, make sure that your team has the first corner kick, uh, you know, $50,000 if you'll do that. And it seems like a small thing at the time for the athlete uh, a lot of money to be made, but once they're recruited into that system, then you know the the ask of that athlete can be increased. We see this in NCAA uh, sports for sure, 
uh, basketball where you're looking at point spreads and things like that. But to your point, um, certainly athletes who are competing at lower levels. So we would look at university sport in Canada. Um, you know, the, the CFL, for example, uh, could be quite vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, it it is amateur sport, but it's professional sport as well. Chatting with Paul Melia, he's the president and CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sports. Uh, they, along with the Canadian Olympic Committee, launching a pilot project to analyze the threat of competition manipulation. This pilot runs through December 2023. Is the focus just going to be on identifying that threat or ways to combat it as well? Yeah, no, it's going to be a comprehensive approach. The pilot will include working with the sport organizations in the pilot to uh, put in place a policy in that sport that addresses competition manipulation, and that policy then would define what violations are. Um, it would provide a sanction framework, and then we would establish um, a confidential reporting platform. So, if anyone knows of any information, they can report it to us confidentially. Uh, we'll work with Sport Radar, who will monitor all of the competitions, and they can use sophisticated. Uh, technology to see if and when manipulation is going on in the betting. So that will be an indication that there could be match manipulation going on in the sport. Um, We'll conduct investigations if we have that kind of information. We'll provide online education for all of the athletes and the coaches and others who need to know that this policy is in place, what um, what their rights and responsibilities are. And then we'll carry out investigations and we'll assert violations and prosecute them in hearings if uh, information leads to uh, that conclusion. As you mentioned earlier, there has been a huge thrust in sports betting, including single game betting or uh, single instances betting in terms of at bats. You mentioned corner kicks uh, could be a boxing match in terms of punches thrown in a round or not thrown. There, There are so many more options for people to bet on. Um, when you're watching sports, are you thinking about these things, thinking, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's real or I don't know if that's fixed? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the great risks that competition manipulation poses to sport. I think we, when we look at it, there are two key uh, concerns. One is athlete safety, uh, because athletes need to be aware, they need to be educated on the fact that they could be approached in very subtle ways um, to be drawn into uh, competition manipulation, right? And so it's really important to educate them because their health and well-being is really at stake. If they're recruited into this, as I mentioned, the asks can be escalated and it's usually organized crime that's involved. Uh, the second is just the integrity of the sporting competition itself. As you point out, you know, the more things that get manipulated within the match or certainly the outcome of the match, then I think that spectators, uh, uh, followers of the sport start to lose confidence in the integrity of the sport. If uh, if they start to doubt what's really going on, is it really uh, a fair competition between two individuals or two teams, or is there a lot of manipulation going on? Once you start to lose, you know, consumer confidence in your product, the sport organizations get very concerned about that. As are the betting agencies because they want to put up bets that people feel they can have confidence that the bets aren't being manipulated. Very much so. Paul, really appreciate your time. It's a fascinating topic, and we wish you uh, good luck in this pilot project. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks very much, Rick. That's Paul Melia, President and CEO of the Canadian Centre for Ethics 
in sports. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.